Hello, I'm Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On this episode, Open Court. What do we know about our most senior judges? Supreme Court justices can often seem remote and mysterious, cloaked by their position and their commitments to impartiality. But recent controversies over judicial behaviour, appointments and independence have reminded us that judges are never removed from the societies that they serve. In Poland, Britain and the United States, Supreme Courts have found themselves at the centre of bitter political conflicts, while the enforcement of lockdowns and quarantines have made us all think more about the importance of the courts in upholding the rule of law and protecting our liberties. After a year in which our Supreme Court came under perhaps unprecedented public scrutiny, it seems more important than ever for us to learn more about its judges. At Ireland's Edge, Dr David Kenny, Associate Professor of Law at Trinity College Dublin, speaks to the Chief Justice of Ireland, Mr Frank Clark. Chief Justice Clark, thank you so much for being with us here at mm-hmm. Ireland's Edge and being willing to talk to us and open yourself up to the public, discuss a little bit about your role and the See court. See what I can manage. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, I think people have heard a lot about Supreme Courts this year. People may have heard about controversial proposed reforms in the UK. I think almost everyone heard about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her replacement with uh, Amy Coney Barrett on the US Supreme Court. And I think it's fair to say our own Supreme Court has probably been in the news a little bit more than, than usual in recent sure. months. And so I, I suppose uh, against that backdrop, uh, do you think that people should understand uh, the Supreme Court and what it does? Is it important that there's a public awareness of its role uh, amongst the general public or is it really just for nerds like me to, to pay attention to? Well, it's certainly for nerds like you, David, but I, I, and it's not for me to tell people what they should be interested in. But I think people ought to be interested because what are sometimes called apex courts, the courts at the top of whatever legal system there happens to be in a country, um, make important decisions that affect lots of people. Every case is important for the people who are in that case, but the highest courts make decisions that potentially affect many more situations way outside the context of the individual case that's there. And, you know, it seems to me if that's so, then it's important that people understand what they're about, how they go about their work, what their role is, what the limits on their role is, are, and um, I think it's a legitimate area of public interest. So it's really important that there's someone at the top to make these sort of major decisions. And in that case, do we think that it's important that there is some space for judges to talk about themselves for judges to be people as well as you know high public officers who make these major decisions should we care who our judges are i i, I think we should um given that they are making important decisions um it's i think a legitimate uh, aspect of public interest in the courts to know who are the people who are making these decisions um you know judges aren't politicians they sh- they're not involved intimately with the public in that way Mm. but nonetheless they're an important part of the overall governance of a country and the higher courts do that on a wide range so I I think that is something the public need to know as much about as can usefully be done. And do you think it's challenging as you said judges in some ways have to shrink from some aspects of a public Mm. role you can't be politicians and you can't take on uh, sort of major stances of public controversy around uh, uh, any issues of political concern is there some difficulty in that when at the same time let's say the Supreme Court does have this uh, you know very significant public power you can strike down laws when you hear appropriate cases Mm. you can give judgments that affect our lives and our politics Uh, but it's very difficult let's say for the court to to 
you know, speak about that beyond its judgments, to sure, talk well, to people directly. As you say, it's often said judges should speak through their judgments. And I think about specific legal issues, certainly serving judges should keep to that because, I mean, just think about it. It's your case um, and you argue it in court or your lawyers argue it in court and you win or you lose and suddenly you find the judge on television saying, well, didn't think much of Mr Kenny or his argument or whatever. I don't think people would think that's appropriate. Mm. There's room for broader reflection afterwards and perhaps some people have retired as well. But I, I certainly think the mechanisms are things we maybe haven't been good enough about explaining. You know, what, are, what are the nuts and bolts of how cases are decided uh, without going into how a particular case was decided but as a general rule how do we go about decision making is I think something the public are entitled to know about. And so as a member of the public you know that might be interested in the Supreme Court what should they watch out for? What do you think the Supreme Court does that is most important for a, a, a person who might be interested in the role it plays in our democracy and in their lives but might know where to start? Um, well I, I suppose the big thing it does is it decides important cases which are going to affect very many situations, constitutional cases in particular. Um, I suppose in Ireland, because of the fact that the courts we hear about are the ones you mentioned, the US, the UK, um, we don't perhaps fully realise that there are lots of different models around the world. Um, in the Anglo-American legal sphere of which we're a part, it's typical to have a Supreme Court that's the top court for everything. But in most of continental Europe, there are different models. For example, most continental countries have a separate constitutional court or tribunal, which is often not formed in quite the same way as the courts, the ordinary courts. Mm. For example, the German constitutional court, the Bundesverfassungsgericht, is elected by the parliament um, with a supermajority, which means the government of the day influences who's appointed but can't decide it because they need some opposition support. I believe at the moment the numbers are such that you need four parties in Germany to get that majority. Um, the Italian Constitutional uh, Tribunal uh, has 15 judges. Five are ordinary judges taken from the highest ordinary courts. Five are appointed by the President of the Republic and five are elected by the Parliament. Now, they need to be lawyers of experience and the like. But I remember just a couple of years ago, uh, I was uh, on a platform uh, with your colleagues in DCU and uh, a judge of the Italian uh, Constitutional Court was with me, Judge Amato. Judge Amato was formerly Prime Minister of Italy. But mm. He's now a judge of their Constitutional Court. And in the same vein, the current president of the French uh, Constitutional Council is Laurent Fabius, former Prime Minister again. So, you know, I think it's important for, for the public not to be unaware of the fact that we have our model that's similar to the US and the UK, but it's not the only game in town, if you like. Yeah, and so you have these different legal traditions mm. that adopt different approaches around Europe. And maybe that reflects the culture and the legal culture and the political sure. systems of those places. What does the fact that we have this, you know, common law system where judges, you know, decide individual cases, we have a general Supreme Court that decides all sorts of cases, there's nine of you that work mm. together to issue sort of, you know, collegiate judgments and, and, and to, to, to work together to decide these appeals. What does that tell us about our culture and our legal system? Well, I think the main thing it tells us is we inherited from our near neighbours, the British, <laughs> because that's the kind of system that was here in Ireland. Uh, no, one of the things I was always struck by is the fact that in 1924, when we set up the first independent courts of the Irish Free State, mm. independence was 22, but it took about 18 months to get the courts up and running. In terms of their structure, they were very similar 
in most respects to the courts that had existed 10 years earlier when we were part of the UK. Yeah. Okay, we turned our lowest court, the district court, into a, a full, full-time judge's court rather than having lay magistrates. And we renamed what was the Court of Appeal for Ireland, which would have been below the House of Lords in, in England, to be the Supreme Court. But the broad structure stayed the same. And I suppose it's what people are used to. You know. Do you think that's surprising, that we didn't do something more well, uh, radical? In I think there were some voices, I believe, at the time, that were other voices which were uh, in favour of perhaps a more radical change. But uh, I suppose lawyers tend to be... Um, harder to change than many other people and I suspect the prevailing majority view was for ordinary cases the system was working reasonably well prior to independence so why change it? But And it was different in the sense that the laws were now being made by an Irish parliament and the judges who were evolving that law and interpreting it were now Irish judges appointed by an Irish system so it had become Irish but in structural terms it was what we knew. And how, how important is it for you that it is a collegiate body, that you have, you know, your, your, your eight colleagues and you work together to decide cases, you, you make a, a collective majority judgment in yeah, an appeal? And we don't always agree. And you don't always agree. And some people openly disagree and some people and, disagree more quietly. And some do it in more strident terms. <laughs> Though I, I think it's a mistake to think that where there's, for example, a fairly strongly worded dissent, mm. that that necessarily means there was any personal acrimony between the judges. You know, I think certainly in my time in the Supreme Court, judges have got on well. And I think it's important that people are able to disagree but still get on well. But there's other aspects to it, you know, which are not visible. Um, the typical process in a case where there isn't a division on the court is that one judge is nominated to write the judgment, but they then circulate it and there'll be comments from others. So it's, it's a collective effort. Uh, and I certainly always found that very valuable. You know, mm -hmm. the, the colleagues whom you respect may say, well, do you need to quite say that? Or is that the best way to say it? Or do we have to go that far? Mm. Uh, sometimes you say, well, actually, I think we do. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes you say, yeah, take your point and we m maybe adjust it a little bit. And, and what, what is, do you think it means that, you know, there is that reasonable disagreement that you can have in law? You know, some judges and some, uh, uh, you know, people talking about law would almost suggest that the law kind of works through you. You're just a vessel for the law kind of determining a case. And others might think that there's much more personality involved. Where along that spectrum do you, do you think uh, uh, it's appropriate to, well, to sit? I, I, I'd like to think I'm not one of those who just thinks that you make it up as you go along sure. and uh, the law is what I would like it to be rather than what it is. But at the same time, I mean, there is room for interpretation yeah. and it's inevitable um, even if people are trying to be as objective as they can, that their personality, their way of thinking will influence to some extent how they exercise that interpretive role. Yeah, it's not about one right answer, it's about coming up with an answer that's well, reasonably right in the circumstances. Yeah, I suspect in, in some kind of cases, at first instance in the lower courts, there probably is one right answer. Mm -hmm. But cases nowadays only come to the Supreme Court because there's a, there's a legal issue of some importance. Yeah on which people may legitimately have different points of view. And the point of the process is to tease that out, hopefully with good lawyers arguing both sides of it and come to a view. And reasonable people may come to different views, hence dissenting judgments. Yeah, uh, something that we've, we've seen in, in recent years is a concern about 
the independence of the judiciary in some of our uh, uh, European uh, neighbours, particularly mm. in, in Poland and Hungary, concerns have been raised about the, the ongoing independence of the judiciary and a sort of a very uh, widespread belief that if judges don't have sufficient independence, that can be a threat to good governance and, and to the rule of law. And the Supreme Court sort of took a, a, a remarkable step in, in joining with some of your European colleagues in sending a representative to uh, march in Poland for the importance of, of judicial yeah. independence. And was that, for you, a really important thing for the Supreme Court to do? I think it was. Um, firstly, we are a member of a number of Supreme Court bodies, if you like, throughout the European Union. And as an aside, I think we're going to become a more important member with Britain gone, because there was always a need for the common law voice to be heard in those bodies. And we would have shared that with Britain and to a lesser extent Cyprus and Malta, who have mixed systems. But we're now the major common law country, even though we're quite small. Um, but we will be quite active in those bodies. And precisely because there are different structures to the courts in other countries, there's three different bodies, one for constitutional courts, one for public law cases or public law courts, which deal with people challenging government decisions, and then one for ordinary run-of-the-mill cases between people. And, you're all and we're on all of them, yes. because we do all three of them. Uh, and that, so, But we're active on those, and each of those bodies was concerned about the situation and was supportive of our colleagues in particularly Poland, and mm. that's why I felt it was important that we were seen to be part of that process. That d defending the judicial role in, exactly. in European neighbours is important for all of us. Yeah, but I think there's all, that's a sort of a high-level moral argument yeah. with which I agree. Sure. But there's a, a more practical reason as well. I mean, under EU law, national courts, and particularly the higher national courts, are obliged to recognise decisions of all other courts with some very limited uh, exceptions. That means a, a, a judgment comes in from a court in Belgium or Poland or Croatia, uh, and we're not meant to second-guess how that came about, inquire into how it came about. Part of the whole idea of the European Union is it's been decided and if it needs enforcement in Ireland we have to do it. But if we have genuine concerns about the independence of the judiciary who made that order, that causes a problem for us and for everyone else. So apart from the high moral ground argument, I think there's a practical reason why it's a legitimate concern of the judges of any individual EU member state uh, to be sure that you mightn't agree with the judgment, yeah. you might even think it's wrong, but the way we have to do it is to enforce it, even if we think it's wrong. But if we think it's actually come out of a process that isn't independent, I think that's a different thing altogether. Yeah, there has to be that trust. Exactly. Tr trust that they have done their best to do it right. And even if I think they got it wrong equally, I would hope they would enforce my order if they thought I got it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and something you've spoken about um, a number of times since you've taken over as Chief Justice is the importance of actually being able to access the courts. Because it's one thing to have a court system that can fairly sure. decide disputes and that can, you know give us this, this uh, uh, someone at the top to, to resolve these problems. It's another for people to actually be able to use that in, in their own lives. And in our system, you know, there's been concerns that the court process is complicated and it can be difficult to navigate and it can be very expensive. And that means that in practice for an ordinary citizen, going to court's a lot harder uh, uh, in practice than in theory. Um, do you think we're making any progress in, in improving um, that situation? I, I don't think we've made progress yet but I think we might be about to make progress for reasons I'll explain in a minute. I think they're all very legitimate concerns. I think they're very real problems about access to justice mm. in Ireland at the moment. You know, if you're, it's said sometimes if you're very rich or very poor, uh, you may be okay. If you're in the middle and you have something to lose, uh, it may not be okay. 
Uh, I think we have been through a, what I might call a planning phase. Um, there are a number of strands to it. The court service itself has adopted a, a medium-term strategy called Digital First, which will greatly increase the use of IT in the courts, which will make it easier for people to access through IT, um, easier to process. We've just had yesterday the publication of the Kelly Report, the Civil Justice Review, uh, uh, conducted by a committee chaired by the recently retired president of, of the High Court, Peter Kelly, which has made fairly significant and radical proposals about costs, procedures, simplification. So I think the combination of those two things has given us a plan, if you like, and government has, as I understand it, accepted the Kelly report and is about to set up an implementation group to implement it. The court service uh, policy strategy has been accepted by government and nine million was provided in the last budget mm. to do the first phase of that. So I, I think actually we're at a very interesting uh, nexus between a planning and thinking about it phase to actually getting on with implementing it. And I would think next year is the beginning of implementation. I don't think it will solve all the problems. There are other strands. Legal aid, for example, is one. There are cost recommendations in the Kelly report, though. It's interesting. It's one of the areas where not everyone agreed. There's two different views, yeah. so we'll have to see how that pans out. Uh, but I think the bit of it that we can control, which is how the courts are run, to make them as simple and accessible as possible is at least on the way to being solved, even though we probably haven't actually done much implementation yet. And so there's, there's that problem of actually getting people into court, making sure they can afford it and have that access. And then there's, I suppose, making the law accessible in a more general sense. And when mm. lawyers talk, it's not uncommon for people to just glaze over and to think that we're using unnecessarily complicated words. My students mock me all the time for saying weird things like condign and opacity in other words where I, where I could speak a lot more simply and I choose not to. Uh, when you're writing on the Supreme Court when you're thinking about uh, how to communicate a major sort of issue in, in a judgment, how do you expect people to interact with it? Can you write for the public? Is what you're doing just too complicated and too technical to be really accessible? Do lawyers always have to speak in a way that nobody understands? Uh, no, I think a lot of it is that if you speak in a way nobody understands, they think you're doing something terribly complicated and it must be worth a lot of money. It makes us feel good as well. So that's, um, I, I've, I've, in recent years, I've had given a lot of thought to who is the audience for a court judgment. I think the first audience must be the parties. You know, it's mm. their case. Someone wins, someone loses. They're entitled to know why they won and why they lost. But there are other audiences in academic life. If the case is of some legal importance, uh, academics will want to know about it and know what, what does it contribute to, how does it change the law. Uh, it may have a public interest generally, so mm -hmm. the press may need to know. So there can be a whole range. Legislators may need to know because... Might be may, a political reaction. Be, there's a whole range of different audiences. And it is hard to write for all of them. I mean, it needs to be legally tight because if you use loose language, then people will try and interpret it in different ways that may not actually contribute to certainty in the law, which is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. But I certainly believe a lot of it can be written in language that is much more accessible to an ordinary interested person than perhaps some of it has been in the past. Legislation, you might say the same about. Yeah. And some of it is very... Um, I mean, some has to be complicated, but some is a lot more complicated than it perhaps needs to be and written in language that wouldn't convey a meaning to an ordinary intelligent person. And so do you think that the, as a judge then you have to adapt 
your language depending on who you think the audience is. If you think the audience is just the parties because the issue is quite small, you write one way. If you think ordinary citizens will care, you might have to take a bit more care to be... In an ideal world, you might do that, but in truth, you probably just do it the way you always do it. You know, I think that's... <laughs> and then you hope for the best. And you hope for the best, yeah. And so, uh, given that, you know, we're, we're, we're here in the, the, the Gaeltacht in, in Dingle, and um, uh, given that you speak fluent Irish and you can conduct... Well, I wouldn't say fluent, but I... Near, nearly fluent? Reasonably. Fun, functionally fluent? I spent 10 years with the Christian Brothers in the 60s. It's very hard to leave such a school at that time without having reasonable Irish. I haven't forgotten it all yet. <laughs> and you, and you, you've been able to have hearings of cases yeah. in Irish. And so, um, you know, given that we have a constitution that says that Irish is the, the, national. the national language and the first official language. But in practice, we find that Irish is, is often, you know, marginalised in official proceedings. It could be difficult if you wanted mm. to have a court case heard through Irish to, to make that happen. Um, you know, do, do you think we have an obligation to have the law accessible in... in Absolutely. I mean, there's a formal obligation in, in the district court in Gaelthoth areas that's meant to be a judge who can do cases in Irish. And I think we now have that. Um, we probably are light on judges who are fluent enough. I mean... You know, there's plenty of people who might have conversational Irish, but if you're dealing with something important and difficult, people want to be sure they understand something very precisely. And there would be a fair number of people who might feel they could have a chat around a, a coffee table in Irish, but would be concerned that they might miss something uh, in, in a court case. So, um, so I think that is something we need to address. And Given that we, you know, we, we discussed that every legal system has its own sort of influences and influenced by its own culture around it, and, and here at Ireland's Edge, we're always interested in how, you know, culture and, and uh, creativity and, and so on influence everyone. Do you think that Irish judges uh, sort of write in a different way because of the influence of the language? We have so many sort of, you know, proverbs and, and idioms in Irish that are so distinct and relate to a very perhaps unusually Irish way of seeing and doing justice. Do you think that affects how we write and how we think about the law? I've never consciously thought that, but I think it almost certainly must be so. You know, I always felt a lot of Irish as it is, English as it's spoken in Ireland, is sort of a translation from Irish, <laughs> sure. you know, or a, it's evolved a bit in more recent times. So I think it must affect the idiom and that must affect the way people express themselves. So we probably have our own unique style of Irish legal English. Well, it's sometimes. probably a little different. I mean, if you read... A judgment of an Irish court is probably not exactly the same as a judgment of the English court, even if it's dealing with similar topics and some of the legal concepts may be the same. And so, um, again, on that sort of theme, you know, uh, the Irish are always said to be a, a nation of storytellers. And when, you know, you read the judgments of the courts, uh, a case has always come because two people have had a dispute of some sort. Mm. And often to actually know how the case should come out, you have to know the sort of the factual background. You have to know exactly what happened between these people. So your judgments will often have very detailed set of events mm. which reads almost sometimes like a like a, a non-fiction yeah. novel you know like you're reading Truman Capote's In Cold mm. Blood and you're, you're sort of getting a, a narrative account of these events that happened in real life do you think that judges are a little bit like sort of storytellers or, or novelists they have to tell these stories to even decide the cases you have to give a, an well, account of what's well it's certainly true. it's certainly the foundation of what 
the, ju the legal judgment is based on. Now, well, every legal judgment is the application of the law to some set of facts. Sometimes the facts may be agreed or no great dispute. Sometimes there may have been hard swearing in court with people giving very different accounts. And part of writing that story may involve the judge actually having to make a judgment call about which evidence the judge believes or which is more credible, which may have support in documents or whatever. Yeah. And also, remember, if you're a trial judge, one of, the, one of the audiences you're writing for is an appeal court to explain why you made that decision. So the appeal court doesn't think you got it wrong, yeah. you'd like to think. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you need to explain why, you know, Mr. Kenny said this and Mr. Clark said that, and I believe Mr. Kenny, yeah. but here's why. So the appeal court can understand why you took that view. And you would be given a big margin of appreciation because you were there, you mm. saw the witnesses. But you do need to explain the reason you took that view, why you thought that story Stand was a better, a better story than the other story. Yeah. And, you know, the way sometimes um, novelists will say that they sort of tried to write uh, uh, a story a certain way, but the story just wouldn't write that way. It, could, it wouldn't, the, yeah. the characters wouldn't let it. Do you ever find that writing a judgment yeah. that just won't write the way you thought it would? Well, <laughs> you have to change your mind. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly can remember a number of occasions where if you'd asked me, day one when I was sitting down to start writing mm. um, I would have told you I think the, the end of this story is going to be over there but it doesn't get there and, and something in tr actually trying to write it assists the thought process mm. because having to put it down on paper you say, well, actually that doesn't really make sense or I don't really think that hangs together the way I initially thought it did I wouldn't say it happens too often but there certainly are I, I can certainly think of my own career and I'm sure in others uh, there were events where the story changed or your view of the story changed as you try to put it on paper and so I think one of the things that's been very interesting about your your tenure as Chief Justice is you have been willing to be somewhat open and accessible and sort of, you know, talk about your role and, and, and talk about you. And uh, uh, I think your presence here is a statement to that as, uh, as well. Um, so people know a little bit sort of more about your background. Somewhat interestingly, unlike most lawyers, you're not sort of afraid of numbers and you don't find math scary because you trained as a... a I like a, them. ...a mathematician <laughs> first. Um, and that was what your, your sort of undergraduate education was in. Do you think that your a mathematician lawyer? Do you think that thinking like a mathematician helps you with well, your legal work? I suppose the fear about saying yes is someone says, oh, he does judgments by numbers, like paint, paint by numbers, you know. <laughs> but law is analytical, you know, analysing the facts is an analytical process and the law itself is analytical. And mathematics is highly analytical. So I think it'd be naive to think a training in mathematical analysis doesn't influence the way you think. Um, I don't consciously set out to say I'm going to do this by numbers, but I, I think the way I approach a problem is probably not dissimilar. You know, mathematical analysis follows logical sequences of proof of this followed by proof of that. I think that's probably the way I think about the law. But you also have to remember it's a human exercise as well. You know, cases are about real people and real things, yeah. so they can't always be reduced to simple formulas. And well, how did you start there and end up here? How did you leave the sort of Olympian perfect world of mathematics and fall into the grubby, complicated mess that is resolving um, legal disputes? Uh, through uh, a source that you would be familiar with, David, which is called debating in university. <laughs> I went, it was a first year undergrad in UCD, 1969-70, doing maths and economics. 
fell into university debating, fell in with a bad crowd of people who were all going to go and become lawyers. And I said, that seems like a good idea for me. And that's what happened. And the, re- the rest was history-ish. <laughs> and, and, you, and you were happy to sort of leave the sort of the, the, the formal, clear answers you were getting in maths and, and deal in the, well, I, the mess that we, that we end up with in I, I like in to think life. I bring a bit of formal, clear answers to the law as well, but perhaps not as perfectly as you might in the maths. Just every once in a while, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and so then in terms of, you know, we're, we're, we're here at Ireland's Edge and we've had five incredible nights of, of, uh, of other voices uh, uh, last week. Um, in terms of uh, uh, your own kind of interests and, and when you're not, you know, in your judicial role, what do you like to listen to? Do other members of the court share your musical taste? Do you ever have fights about, uh, 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 you know, what, what, whose musical taste is best? Well, mine is better than the rest. Well, natu- by definition. Justice, sure. <laughs> um, I don't think we fight over it, but people have different tastes. But... Um, you know, most have a fairly Catholic view of, of their interests. I mean, I grew up in the 60s, so I'm, I'd like to think I'm not a prisoner of the 60s, but at the same time, um, you know, you are influenced by your first exposure to a particular area of culture. Um, so I'd be sort of still a bit of a child of the 60s in my, in my popular music tastes. Right. I'd also have a wide interest in classical music as well. But we're talking 60s rock as your, as your core um, interest. Is that really the, the I, heart um, of it? Are there any the, other judges at the, the Supreme Court that, in, that the enjoy? The high point of Western civilization, so far as I'm concerned, was Cream. Very good. <laughs> um, when Cream had their famous uh, farewell concert in the Royal Albert Hall in 1968, but they reformed in 2005, just after I'd become a high court judge. And myself and a colleague Supreme Court judge, who shall remain nameless, bought tickets, went over to the Albert Hall with my son, Ben, uh, who's a sort of a part-time barrister and part-time musician, um, to see Cream reformed, uh, playing the first night of their Royal Albert Hall again. That's fantastic. Uh, that was interesting. <laughs> and so in terms of then, do, do, you, do you feel like uh, your interest in in music and in the arts and so on. Do you think that's a the major part of your life? Is there lots going on outside of the law and the Supreme Court? Yeah, the, the last four years as Chief Justice has made it a bit narrower because there's a lot going on there too. But I always remember sitting beside a very senior English judge uh, at a dinner oh, five or six years ago. He was a sort of a pre- presidential judge in charge of other judges. Uh, and the comment he made to me was that the people he was really worried about were the ones who didn't have outside interests. And he said, well, provided it's legal and relatively respectable, I don't care what they are, but I really get worried about the judge who goes home and reads all books for the weekend. Yeah. And I think it's important for people's heads that they have other things that interest them, keep them human, keep yeah. them occupied, give them contact with other people. You know, it's not good for lawyers to only talk to other lawyers because yeah. then you get into lawyer speak and you do that all the time. It's yeah. good to be exposed to people who have other interests. And if, if you're active in other interests yourself, then you'll naturally meet other people who have perhaps different perspectives on things. So judges are people too, is the, the I'd like take-home to point think there. that they are. Um, I know that's not a view that's universally accepted by everybody, uh, but actually they are. I mean, a very interesting experience just in the last couple of weeks. One of the programmes for opening up that we've uh, developed is one called CORA, which is was actually remote even before COVID. It's the idea that we would, with in conjunction with secondary schools, we would have two Supreme Court judges give a remote talk 
with questions to a class of sort of fourth, fifth, sixth years in secondary schools around the country. And we'd begun to roll it out before COVID. It obviously stopped when the schools were stopped, but we've sort of finished the pilot programme mm. and I think we're going to go ahead with it as a permanent feature. But I got feedback from a school last week who said that you know the, the students were really fascinated to see the judges as people. Mm. Uh, it wasn't what they expected at all. The judges talked about themselves as well as what they did and the like. And I think that is important, you know. And also, judges have pressures like people, you know. They may have financial pressures from time to time. They may have personal issues. They may be sick, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, all the same things that happen to everyone else happens to judges. That you're not immune from the human condition just because you're a judge. Yeah, and one, one final question. When people think of the Supreme Court, if they've been watching and they've been listening to your answers, what would you like them to, to think of? What would you like people to associate the Supreme Court with? How should they, how should they feel about it, do you think? Um, I would like them to think that it's humans doing the best they can. Um, I'd like them to think that judges try and apply the law but do it humanely. The phrase justice in accordance with law is one I'm very fond of. So I think there are two strands that sometimes pull against each other. You know, you have to apply the law. When you're, when you're appointed, you'd make a declaration to uphold the law. And you mightn't always agree with the law, but you do have to apply it. But you try and do it as best you can in a way that's fair and just. And I would like the court to be seen as a group of people who are trying to do that. People may not always agree we've done it in a particular case. They may think we're wrong. They're entitled to think we're wrong. We may be wrong. But I'd like people perhaps to believe we're trying to do it as best we can and doing a reasonable job at it. Chief Justice Clark, thank you so much for being with us at Ireland's Edge. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks. Thank you to Chief Justice Frank Clark for joining David Kenny and Tingle. On our next episode, Jim Carroll speaks to Grammy Award-winning musician Rhiannon Giddens about the hidden history of the banjo. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Cassan. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge. Hold up. 